Oh, good morning. Happy New Year. Pastor Trevor, I'm glad you could join us this morning. Those of you joining us online, welcome as well. Uh, I want to thank you all for allowing me to uh, take uh, the previous week uh, off um, and take some downtime and spend some time with the family. I want to thank uh, Philip Runge for filling in for me uh, last Sunday as well. Um, before we get to the prayer and message, uh, there are books uh, downstairs on uh, the table. As soon as you go into the fellowship hall on your right, a bunch of books uh, that were donated. Uh, so they're free. Uh, check them out if you see if you want any of them. Uh, they'll be there for about a month or until they're gone. If there's anything left come February, uh, it'll either go into uh, the library or in, in the trash. Uh, so check them out. There's some, some classics down there, some books about uh, scripture, uh, a, good, a good variety, some books about history, uh, some picture books. So uh, check it out um, after, after service, not, not now. Uh, all right. So let's uh, go to our Father in heaven in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for a new year. We thank you for today. We thank you that we're able to gather once again as a family to sing praises of your goodness, of your greatness, of your majesty, of your glory. And we ask, Father, that now as we come to your word, that we would hear your voice, that you would speak to us by your spirit, uh, by the truth that you've revealed to us, that you would help us to humble ourselves before you, that we would respond accordingly by the power of the spirit, um, and that we would do so, Father, so that we would be edified, sanctified, and equipped to glorify you in, in all that you would have us do, Father. We ask these things for your glory by the power of the Spirit. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. You ever consider, ponder uh, the state of things, uh, the state of the country, the state of the church, uh, the state of your family, the state of your own personal life? And do you ever begin to become concerned and wonder is God still faithful? Or if, if God still cares about you, or you wonder, can I even still trust God? Maybe you're overwhelmed by darkness. You're overwhelmed by the idolatry and the sin that you see in the church, in the nation. Or maybe you're overwhelmed by the idolatry and sin in your own life. Whether you've grown up in the church and you ought to know better, but you didn't act accordingly, or you're new to the faith and old habits, they die hard, and they go away slowly. So you wonder, will God still be true to his word, and will he deliver you? Is God still faithful to his church, to the bride of his son? And if so, how do you know, and on what basis do you place this trust? Well, if you haven't yet, please open your Bibles to Judges chapter 13, if you need a Bible, we've got Bibles underneath the seats around you. If you do not own a Bible or you know somebody who doesn't own a Bible, uh, feel free to keep uh, a Bible or, or two. We're covering 24 of the 25 verses of this chapter this morning. We're going to save verse 25 for next week. We're not going to do it by itself, but it goes better with the next chapter. Uh, these 24 verses paint a picture of God's faithfulness to his people in the midst of spiritually dark times times full of idolatry and unfaithfulness. Uh, this picture is the start of a new cycle for us. Remember, Jephthah's cycle ended in chapter 12, which we covered two weeks ago, and Samson's cycle begins this week. This is also the last cycle of Judges, and it is the most detailed cycle in regard to the life of the cycle's judge. It's the most expansive one, the most detailed one, especially about his personal life. Uh, this could be one of the reasons why Samson is one of the 
more popular, if not the most well-known judge. So let us begin by reading and making ourselves familiar with the picture that the Spirit has written for us, and then we'll consider the truths found there and how they affect us today. Verse 1 of Judges 13. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. So Yahweh gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So once again, we start this chapter, this cycle, with the familiar refrain that the people continued in their sin, and thus Yahweh handed them over to an oppressor. Now, we already know this oppressor. This oppressor has already been named, right? That the Philistines began oppressing uh, the people of Israel at the start of Jephthah's cycle. Uh, remember back in chapter 10, after uh, God describes the totality of Israel's idolatry, uh, God handed his people over not just to one oppressor, but to two, and on two fronts, uh, the Ammonites and the Philistines. And, and Jephthah's cycle specifically dealt with the Ammonites. Uh, so the cycle of Samson and the cycle of Jephthah, chronologically speaking, they overlap. Uh, they are not occurring at distinct time periods, but they are occurring at different locations. Uh, remember, the Ammonites came from the east, and Jephthah lived across the Jordan east of, of the river. The Philistines, they come from the coastal lands in the west and northwest. And as we will read, Samson and his family, they lived west of the Jordan River. And this oppression by the Philistines, it lasted for 40 years. Uh, the oppression of the Ammonites was only about 18 years, as pointed out by Judges 10, verse 8. Now, keep in mind that unlike the Ammonites, the Philistines never really go away until King David. Samson's judgeship, as we will see, is not like the other judgeships where the people are freed from their oppressors. Uh, we know that King Saul, he became king. He was asked to be king, or the people desired a, a king, asked Samuel for a king, uh, because they wanted somebody to lead them into battle against the Philistines. And King Saul was, was anointed about 1050 B.C., and Samson, he dies around 1055 B.C. So there's about a half a decade there separating uh, the two. Thus, the oppression of the Philistine actually goes beyond the cycle of Samson. And this fits, if you've been paying attention to the cycles, this fits with the trend of the cycles. Um, as noted with Jephthah's cycle, the regular steps of the cycles have begun to fade away, right? There's no line written about God raising up a judge, nor was there a line written at the end of Jephthah's cycle about the land experiencing rest for X number of years. It was the first cycle that we're, we're not told how long the land had rest. And then with this final cycle, we see even more degradation of those cycles to the point that we're not told that the people will cry out. It's almost as if they're fine with the oppression. They've learned to tolerate the judgment of God. And nor do we read about them getting delivered during the judgeship of Samson. So let's continue. Verse 2. There is a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of Yahweh appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, 
where in a normal cycle, we would be told at this point that God raised up a, a judge. And in this cycle, we don't get that familiar refrain. However, what we do get is, is an expanded form of that refrain. So let's know a few things about it. First, let's consider the people. We're introduced to a certain man. His name is Noah. He's from Zorah and of the tribe of Dan. So this is to the west of the Jordan. His wife, who remains nameless uh, throughout, uh, but certainly she, she plays a more critical role. So don't think that because she's not named, she's less significant. Um, but she is very much more significant. And as we'll see, she's the one that possesses the wisdom of the two. We're told that she's barren and she always has been, been barren. She has no children. And then we're introduced to the angel of, of Yahweh, a divine messenger. Now, whether this is God himself as the pre-incarnate Christ or an angelic messenger, that could be debated. I have my thoughts and I will share them with you when the time comes. Now, let's consider this message, the calling of Samson. First, this calling for Samson begins when he is in the womb. It's not like the other judges. All the other judges were called postnatal. Samson is called prenatal. Second, note the compassion in the calling. The angel acknowledges the woman's barrenness. It's not as if the woman doesn't know that. So, so why say it? Well, one, in part, it's, it's a sign of divine knowledge, right? So to know that uh, she is barren, you, you, somebody doesn't know that by looking at a person. So clearly the messenger is showing that he has divine knowledge. He, he knows something about her that is intimate to her. Second, also reveals to her that God knows her and sees her. Not only her condition, but her plight, her darkness, her struggle. In fact, in the Old Testament, in infertility, well, it was a curse, right? It was a curse associated with covenantal unfaithfulness, right? Deuteronomy 28, 18 tells us infertility, the barren, both of, of the land, the cattle, and the people, it's a curse due to covenantal unfaithfulness. So this is especially striking for her to hear, for this to happen, for us to read about, that God would visit this cursed person, even among pagans, even among the Canaanites, infertility was seen as a curse, a judgment from the gods. So the angel is essentially saying to her, behold, you, you who are cursed, you who have been judged, no more. No longer shall you be cursed. No longer shall you be judged. You shall be blessed. And then the angel gives her instructions. She receives good news, and then she's given instructions in the form of a warning. It's, it's almost just like what God did with Israel and the Exodus, right? God gave them the good news. He delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh, and then he gave them the law. It wasn't the other way around. So the angel starts off the instructions with, be careful, be warned, do as I say, pay attention. He tells her, she will conceive a son who shall be a Nazarite from the womb, not birth, but from the womb. Hence why the mother needs to be mindful of her own diet, because a child in her is a child, it's a human being. So just one of the many examples of scripture acknowledging that what is in the womb is a person, not a clump of cells, not something else, it is a person. Now, typically, a, a Nazarite vow was taken for a period of time. It, it wasn't for a lifetime. Number six, which gives us the instructions of the vow, um, tells us it's for a designated amount of time. It, it's not meant for a lifetime. 
And the instructions that the angel gives here, they're similar to what we have in Numbers 6, except that it's much more, um, it's the abridged version of those instructions. And of course, the time frame is different because Samson being called by God, uh, where he has no choice in the situation, he has been dedicated to this vow uh, for all of life. Um, and the instructions to eat nothing unclean is added. That's not in number six because it doesn't need to be because all Hebrews weren't supposed to eat anything unclean. That's, a, that's just a regular way of life. You don't need to take a vow not to eat anything unclean if you were um, Hebrew. So this need to add instructions to don't eat anything unclean, again, it's just one of the many markers to show how canonized the people of Israel have become. Remember, they are, are people who have forgotten God, they have forgotten Yahweh, and they have forgotten his word. Now, of course, as we will see in the coming weeks, Samson does not do a very good job I play doesn't do any job at all um, with adhering to this vow that his life is supposedly dedicated to. And we're never told um, how faithful uh, his, his mother is to it. <clears throat> now finally, know how the message ends. The angel says the son will begin to save Israel. It's not he will save Israel. He will begin to save Israel. He's only going to start the process. So even from the get-go, the author's letting us know, God's letting us know, Samson's not going to deliver the people. He's just going to start the process. So let's read on and see what the woman does in response to this message. Verse 6. The woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb of the, to the day of his death. So she goes, tells her husband Manoah, tells, her, tells him about the news, clarifies the length of the vow. She adds to the day of his death. And then she also highlights by doing this, by, by telling him, look, I didn't ask any questions. It, to us, it reveals that she had a very simple faith about this. Uh, because he was kind of terrifying in appearance, kind of awesome and kind of terrifying at the same time, uh, in the fact that he knew about her condition, she by faith assumed he was who he was. So she kept her mouth shut. So let's read how her husband responds to this. Verse 8, Manoah prayed to Yahweh and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us to teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. Even though his wife just told him, what they were supposed to do. So clearly there's some, some doubt there, but Manoah, in, in humility to, to God at least, has some doubts of his wife's accounts and he's asking God for clarity to send the man back to them. So let's see if, if God answers his prayer. Verse nine, God listened to the voice of Manoah and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, behold, the man who came up to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is it to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of Yahweh said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. So 
God does answer Manoah's prayer. But the messenger, again, comes to the woman and, and not to him. It's almost a, a slight to him. But the woman, in her faithfulness and her love and her dedication to her husband, runs and gets him. She doesn't hesitate. Quickly goes, gets him, and Manoah comes, comes to the man. And know how Manoah speaks of his wife to the messenger. He doesn't name her, nor does he refer to her as his wife. She remains unnamed and known purely for what she is, a woman. Now, many have tried to make much of this in this passage, and it certainly speaks to the, the culture's view, especially then, uh, of, of women, but I'm not sure there's much more to it than that. Um, obviously, we see God treating women with a great deal of respect, and as we will see, uh, th- in this unnamed woman, she holds the wisdom in the relationship, and, and it's almost like the angel saying, I've already told your wife, listen to her. Like, the instructions I gave her, all I said to her, that's the manner. But yet God is gracious and he is patient with us. So the angel confirms all of that. And so let us read on and see how Manoah responds upon um, hearing the confirmation of this, uh, this information and, and that his doubts have now been uh, put to rest. Verse 15, Manoah said to the angel of Yahweh, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of Yahweh said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat your food, but if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to Yahweh. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of Yahweh. So Manoah, he wants to share a, a meal with his messenger, and the messenger says no. He rejects the offer. Now, why would he say no to this? Well, it's not because he's an angel and angels don't eat. If you recall Genesis 18, when Yahweh appeared before Abraham with two other angels, all three of them ate food there with Abraham. So clearly angels, they can eat, they can consume food. But why might this angel say no? Well, to share a meal with someone is to share fellowship with them. It is to share a a peace, a shalom with them, perhaps even a, a oneness with them. Yet the spiritual condition of God's people at this time is so great and so dark. They've been so canonized so consumed with idolatry and sin that even the angel will not eat with them. But the angel does offer an alternative. The the man can offer a burnt offering, which would certainly be appropriate, and he can offer it to Yahweh. And this is is why I believe this angel of Yahweh is not a Christophany in this particular instance. That is, he's not a pre-incarnate Christ. Because if this was God himself, he would have the offering prepared for himself. But the angel here is not seeking to receive the offering himself. And when the offering is offered and Yahweh accepts it, the angel goes up with the offering. um, And and nor does the angel here have any part in the offering being consumed. Uh, If you think of Gideon's angel uh, of Yahweh there, that angel had a rod, a staff, that touched the food and then the food was consumed. Here, we're not told of anything about the angel doing anything. It, It was just It was just consumed, and the angel went up. So with that being said, I believe this to be just a divine messenger from Yahweh with a message to Manoah and his wife. Now, with all that being said, I could be wrong. It it could be a Christophany, so that's not settled. It could still be debated. One could perhaps argue, well, with it being the pre-incarnate Christ, it's still appropriate to make an offering to God the Father, and that can work. But again, I have, my, that's, I have my stance, and that is where I am standing. If you want to stand on the other side of the fence, you can 
do that as, as well. Let's continue on. Verse 17. Manoah said to the angel of Yahweh, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of Yahweh said to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. So, so before Manoah goes and gets the goat, he wants to know the man's name, right? He still thinks he's probably a regular man. He's confused to whom he's speaking with. The messenger responds by essentially saying, my name's too wonderful for you. You can't comprehend it. See, either because Manoah is a mere man or because of his spiritual condition, he's an earthly man, a man of the world, thus what is righteous, what is spiritual is foolishness to him. He's unable to understand this name. And this expression at the end of verse 18, it is a little odd, both in, in the Hebrew um, and in the English. Uh, but this expression is also used in Psalm 139, verse 6. And so Psalm 139, verse 6 helps us understand this. In Psalm 139, verse 6, it reads, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. And then it's, that's explained a little bit more for us. It is high. I cannot attain it. So this, this understanding of his name being wonderful has, has this um, idea that it's, just, it's too marvelous. It's exalted. It, it's heavenly. It's divine. Mere mortals just can't grasp it. Continuing on, verse 19. So Manoah took the young goat with a grain offering, offered it on the rock to Yahweh, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. They're paying attention. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of Yahweh went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of Yahweh appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of Yahweh. So now finally Manoah, he sees, he understands, his eyes are open. So let's finish our passage and see how he responds to this revelation. Verse 22, Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If Yahweh had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering out of hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the young man grew, and Yahweh blessed him. So Manoah's response here, it is grounded in good theology. It is true. No man can see the face of God and live. However, it is unreasonably applied given what has unfolded. And his wife corrects his perspective. See, see men, you may have the authority in your household, but that does not mean you inherently hold the wisdom. Right? Do not conflate the procession of authority with the procession of wisdom. So listen, as Manoah did, listen to your wives from time to time. For some of you, perhaps all the time. Now, the wife points out what should have been obvious. Right? This is the wisdom. Look, the offering was accepted. And, and the words spoken to us pertain to a time yet to come. If, if we were going to die, why would Yahweh say these things to us? Like, it doesn't make sense. Think about it, Manoah. And we're told at the end of, with verse 24 that they didn't die. The woman conceived, and she bore a son. And he, she named him Samson. Now, this name is rather peculiar. It's not a Hebrew name. It's a Canaanite name, at least in, in practice. And it means little son, right? Like the son. That's why the son's on that image. It's a little son, not S-O-N, S-U-N. And it's a name associated with the son God. Shemesh. If you look at Shemesh in Hebrew and Samson in Hebrew, same letters except for the ending. 
which gives Samson little, the little son. One commentator says he could essentially be called Sonny Boy. And Samson was quite possibly a common name in the region that they grew up in. In fact, the village, Bet Shemesh, which means the house of the sun god, is nearby uh, the area that um, Manoah is from. So why would this woman, who is barren, who is blessed by Yahweh, then name the blessing with a name that is associated with a pagan god? Could it have been done in ignorance? Yeah, of course, to some degree. It's a matter of how much degree. But most likely, um, it's fitting with the context of judges. Uh, the name Samson is just another sign, another mark of the canonization of God's people. I mean, it could be that there are other boys in the area named Samson. Right? If it's a common name, she's like, I like that name, I'm going to name it, and in ignorance doesn't realize what she's doing. Or maybe she could be. Maybe she's confusing Yahweh with Shemesh. So here with the final judge of this book, the judge that is blessed from the womb is a judge that bears a name that by all appearances does not honor the one who has blessed him in his family, but honors the idols of the land by which his people are being judged. Yet, there is perhaps some irony in it as well. Though Samson may bear a name that is associated with a pagan deity, Yahweh will raise Samson to be a little sun, a little speck of light for God's people during a time of great spiritual darkness. And Yahweh will do this in spite of his people's sin and idolatry. See, this is who our God is. Our God is one of faithfulness and steadfast love. Recall Exodus 34, verse 6 in seven, Moses, he's on the, he, he's, he's on the edge, edge of the mountain, and, and, and he asks God to, to pass before him. And so in verse six, Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. See, he is a God of great patience. He is a God of great long suffering. And he is holy and purely sovereign over all, even over the hearts of a rebellious, sinful people. He is a God who will always keep for himself a, a remnant of his people. And why? Why does he keep a remnant for himself? Why must he do that? It is for his glory his name, his sake. This is the very thing that Moses himself appealed to before God when he was interceding on Israel's behalf, right? Remember in Exodus, they did the golden calf, great act of idolatry, right after they just got delivered um, from slavery, uh, for, delivered from Pharaoh and his army. They commit idolatry. God wants to smite them. Moses intercedes and read how he intercedes. Exodus 32, verse 11 through 13 Moses implored Yahweh, his God, and said, Yahweh, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Isaac, excuse me, remember Abraham, Isaac. I forgot Abraham, my apologies. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that's Jacob, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven 
And all this land I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And that's the Abrahamic covenant in, in short there. So yes, the old covenant was a conditional one that Israel broke and eventually suffered the full consequences of in the exile and of the, the, the destruction of the temple and the spirit of God leaving the temple. But the Abrahamic covenant, the one that Moses here is referencing, was one that God made with himself. If God were to break that covenant, it would mar his character. It would prove that God is not perfect. He is not sovereign. He is not all-knowing, that he's not able or he does not stand by his word. But God is perfect and he is sovereign and he is faithful to his word. Hence why Moses is appealing to the word of God. He's appealing to the, the character, the majesty, the glory, the faithfulness of God. And hence why God here in Judges continues to save his people in spite of themselves for his namesake. Thus, when you wonder today if you can still trust God and how you can trust God, consider the sin of his people. Consider the fullness of their idolatry and depravity, the complete disregard for who Yahweh is and what he has done for them. A people who have forgotten him. A people who name his blessings after false gods. And then consider your own sin. What have you done? And consider why should God deliver you? Why should God, or why would God, listen to your prayers as he listened to Noah's prayer? And then ponder, why did God ever deliver his people? Why did he ever act on their behalf? Ultimately, he wasn't acting on their behalf. He was acting on his behalf. Not for their name, but for his name. Not for their sake, but for his sake. So if you wonder if God will deliver you, he will if you trust him. If you turn to him and call upon the name of his son. This is why God sent his son. Right? John 3, 16, 18. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, to judge it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. See, if we're left to ourselves, we will continue in idolatry. That's what we do. We are idolatrous people. We recreate idols. We will continue in sin. But unlike Samson, the judge and deliverer of God's people then, who was born in sin and was merely human, our judge and deliverer today, Christ, he was not born in sin. He was not just human, but he was also God. See, your deliverance is not dependent on you. It's not dependent on how you feel, what you do or do not do. It's dependent on God. Hear how Paul describes it in Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. Paul says, you were dead, right? So he's speaking to believers here. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. In other words, there was no life in you. You were stuck. There's nothing you could do that was effective, that was of any worth. You were dead, utterly worthless. And your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, you did it. This is what you did. This is who you were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all, right? Everyone is guilty of this. This is who we are before we come to Christ, before we were born again. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. This is who you were. There's nothing you could do about it. Like the rest of mankind, this is your nature. You have no choice. This is how you're going to act. But, but God, God got involved. God intervened. Being rich in mercy. Well, why? Because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. In other words, because of God's great love, even when you were dead, you smelled you reeked of death, you were a sinner, you were a child of wrath. It was your nature, it was who you are. You had nothing to offer, but because of his love, God has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, not by anything else. Not by what you can do, can't do, not by what you did or didn't do, not by the potential that's in your heart. Nothing about that. It is by grace that you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And why did he do that? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. In other words, so he may show off him. He can glorify himself through this act. It's not so that you can, whatever it be, may be. It's not about you. It is all about him. It's all rooted in him. You are delivered so he may show off the immeasurable riches of his grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. A gift. A gift isn't a reward. It's not a wage. It's not a payment. A gift is freely given. A gift is given with, with, with nothing expected in return. And this is not a tit for tat, well, I gave you this, therefore give me something back, like as if we owe God now. No, it's a gift. It is grace. If something was expected in return in order to keep it, it's not a gift. It's not grace. This is not a result of works so that no one may boast. And this is good, I, that, that your salvation is outside of you. So trust him to be faithful to his word, to be faithful for his name, for his glory. And don't trust him because you think you have earned it or that you are worth it. And don't lose trust in him because you think you have lost it and you don't deserve it. I mean, you would be right to think you don't deserve it. We must be careful not to think that there is something in us apart from Christ that is, not, that is worth saving because there isn't. You, you need to be righteous for that. And outside of Christ, no one is, is righteous, not one person. And outside of Christ, as we just read, all are dead in their sin and trespasses. All are lacking life. All lack the ability to do right by the will of the Father. It's, been, it's by grace you have been saved. It was by grace that Samson's mother became pregnant. What did she do? She was just living life, and God came to her. Why were the Israelites released from bondage? By grace. It was by grace that Samson was blessed. It was by grace that Samson possessed the strength he had despite his sin, despite his clear violations of the vow that he was supposed to keep. 
See, you have worth and value not because of who you are, but because of who he is. You have worth and value not because of what you have or have not done, but because of what he has done. You are a son and daughter of the Most High because of his grace, his mercy, his love. Not because you're special, unique, or that you've earned it, you've done the right kind of works or enough works or or, or suffered enough to, to get it. And this is good. Because when you stumble, when you fail, when the world around you is is falling apart, you don't look within. Don't do it. You don't need to wonder if you've done enough or if you have enough fruit in your life or if the emotional experience you had when you first professed faith was sincere enough. Well, did I weep enough at my conversion? Did I truly believe when I raised my hand? How do, was it emotional enough? It's, It's not rooted in that. And this is good, especially if you struggle with depression. Why, why am I not experiencing the joy that I feel like I ought to be experiencing? Maybe I'm not saved. Your salvation is not rooted in that. That's why we don't chase emotional experiences at church. We chase, we chase the truth. See, your salvation is not rooted in something that is subjective, something that is moving, something that is shifting, something that could change. It's rooted in something that is objective, something that is solid. It is an anchor. It is something that's outside of you. It's rooted in Christ Jesus. It is rooted in God. He has saved you. He has made you alive. So trust him. Romans 8, 20 through 30, Paul reminds us of this. He says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, right? And this good is not prosperity. This good is spiritual maturity, spiritual transformation into the image of his son. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he, the son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. So again, your sanctification, your process of being made more righteous, it's not for you, it's it's for Christ. I mean, we get to enjoy the benefits, right? But it's for Christ, it's for the son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. In the, the verse 30, we get the golden chain. Those whom God predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified, right? So if he has called you, he has justified you. He doesn't call you, give you instructions, and wait for you to justify yourself. He calls you, he justifies you. And then then those whom he justifies, he has glorified, and glorified is the end state, right? So if God has justified you, your glorification, it's it's not rooted in you. It's not based on you. God is doing it. You don't need the sacraments to be glorified. You you, you don't need works to be glorified. You need God. He does it. And if you're saved because of God's grace, we also need to consider that if we're saved by God's grace, we also need to remember that this applies to the church. This applies to others as, as well, even in the midst of dark, idolatrous times. See, as we grow by the grace of God, because it's God who's working in us and he will see it to completion, he does the same with the church. You may look around, you might think, well, okay, I trust God with my deliverance, but boy, the church, it's a mess. Where are the disciples? Where are those who have been born again? Where are the youth, as it's often asked? And if you're not careful, you may start to search for new innovative and novel ways to win people to Christ. And in doing so, you just further increase the idolatry of the church. Don't do it. 
There's this, you shouldn't be chasing new ways for you to know if you should trust him, right, by coming up with made-up sacraments or made-up works of, of, of righteousness or, or the law or whatever you think you need to do in order to stay in saving uh, faith with him. If, if we were to do the same thing to the church, we would come up with new ways for people to come and, and, and know God as if his word's not enough. We need to be careful. God's church is not built based on us. Idolatry may be rampant. Sin may be rampant, even within his church. But again, we're not the ones building it. Christ is the one that's building his church. Yes, he uses us, but he uses us like he used Manoah's wife. To what end did Manoah's wife had? What saying does she have in being told to, to lay off the wine and everything? And that she was going to be pregnant. Maybe it wasn't a convenient time for her to have a child. Maybe it's harvest season. Maybe she had plans. We don't know. God intervened. God didn't get consent from her. She conceived. She became pregnant. She didn't do anything to reverse her barrenness. It was all God. And as such, it's, it's how Christ builds his church. He's the one that does it. Matthew 16, verse 18 Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Or consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6-7. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. God causes it to grow. We don't. Christ will build his church. Society will crumble. This age will end. But the church, the church will always remain. And the church will remain despite itself, despite its imperfections, despite its flaws. Even if the church herself experiences a season of barrenness and new disciples are not being born again, God will not allow his church to disappear. It is for the sake of the elect, for the sake of the church, for his people, that in fact this age will be cut short. Matthew 24, 22, Jesus says, if those days had not been cut short, where he's talking about the tribulation period, those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. For the sake of the church, we're going to end it. Because he will always have a remnant of his people. And even though deception will be rampant in the last days, God will keep his people from being deceived. Just two verses later, Matthew 24, false Christ, false prophets will arise. They will perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. In other words, they can't be led astray, but they will try. Many people will be led astray, but the elect, the church, will not. Because he is the one who keeps them. He is the one who preserves them. And he does so, again, for his glory his name, and he does it because of, one, the Abrahamic covenant, but also now that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, we are his priests. We are his nation. First uh, Peter 2, 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim. So, okay, why? Again, it's not about us, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, for his glory. We are a priesthood. We are a holy nation for his glory. Not because you're special. 
you, you are like so magnificent that God's like, I need you, I need to add you to my collection. I need you to be part of, of this nation. I'm building a fine nation and, and you're worthy of it. I like your piety. I, I like how clean you are. I like how you wash your hands all the time. So you get to be part of the party. No, it's, it's by his grace. Oh, there's a dead person. He makes them alive. There's another dead person. You're alive and he keeps them alive. There's, I, I can't tell you why he saves one person and he doesn't save the other. I can't tell you that except by what I know, by his grace. So in, in times of darkness, in times of barrenness, whether of our own doing or of the doings of, of others, don't despair. Don't lose hope. Don't turn from him and turn to other ways. Don't go, well, these novel ways seem to be working. Or, or, or these new ways of the 21st century, they seem to be producing disciples or, or whatnot. Stay faithful to his word. Do not forget Yahweh. Do not forget Christ. Do not forget what he has revealed. Don't forget what he has done. Don't forget that it is finished. If God decides to withhold from us the blessing of progeny, whether it's spiritual or physical, or withhold from us the fruits of our labor, that's his prerogative. But let us be faithful to the end. Let us always be trusting and ever hoping in him, remembering it is by grace that we have been saved. It's by grace that he saves others. It's by grace that he builds his church, all for his glory, for his name, for his sake. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for this reminder of, of your mercy, of your sovereignty, uh, of, of the immeasurable riches that you have lavished upon us. How despite our sin, despite us being dead in our trespasses, you have intervened. You, you, you do what we are unable to do. You do the impossible. You work wonders, Father. Thank you for your word. Thank you for allowing us to recall the, the life the birth, specifically, uh, of Samson. And for the work that you did through Manoah and, and his wife, we thank you that we can look back on these things and, and consider um, the hope that is, is shown here, that in a time of spiritual darkness, the light's not stuff, snuffed out. It may, it may be close to it, but you'll never let it be snuffed out. And so we, we thank you for Christ, who is the light of all and the life of all. We thank you that you've given him to us uh, by the work that he has accomplished on the cross and, and that his spirit lives and dwells within us, Father. And so we ask that you would help us to live faithfully, that we would walk in the light so we can know that light all the more and that we can enjoy the peace, the joy, and, and all the fruits that come with it and that we can rest uh, knowing that uh, it's you who works in us uh, and that it is you who, are, who have made us a, a temple, a holy temple. So help us to keep that in mind. Give us the, the zeal, uh, the fear, and the confidence to, to live our lives appropriately in light of these marvelous truths that at, at times are perhaps uh, too wonderful for us to comprehend. Or maybe even we just have a hard time fathoming the, the goodness of it. Just how it's, sometimes it just sounds too good. And perhaps that's the scandal uh, that we struggle with, Father. So help us to, to believe, help us to trust in your word and what you have done, and help us uh, to rest um, in the work of Christ, not leaning on our own understanding or not leaning on our own works, but help us to 
trust what you have said to us, spoken to us, Father, through your word. Father, we, we ask that you'd bless the bread and the cup this morning as we come to it. And as we do, we ask that you would help orient our hearts to the good news that it represents. That as we drink the cup and eat the bread, we would taste the gospel. That we would be reminded that your son, the work on the cross, it is finished, it is done. And one day he's returning to bring the fullness of the kingdom, the fullness of his glory, your glory, and all the angels with him. To judge the righteous and the unrighteous. And to, to deliver us fully and completely from this age. And to deliver us into an age of eternity, of, of um, everlasting joy with you. So Father, help us to live faithful lives until that day, whether it is his return or us being called home. Father, we ask these things for your glory, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.